You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 170 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and guest panelist Amy Frickholm. Hello, Victoria and Amy. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. Let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Um, Victoria, could you go first? Yes. Uh, Hello. I am Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I'm one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, Really excited to talk to Amy about her wonderful book. Uh, I have a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University. And uh, for fun, I write about gender and culture in various publications. Uh, And I've been running this podcast for about nine and a half years now, which is crazy. Uh, And for money, I am a community engagement manager at a market research firm. Nine and a half years. I didn't realize it had been so long already. Wow. (laughs) Thanks, Victoria. Um, Oh, sorry. I'm Amy Frickholm, and um, I'm a senior editor at Christian Century Magazine, and I've been there for, gosh, a lot of years, I think 13 years. Um, and um, I, I'm i here because I wrote a book about Mary of Egypt, this little known saint um, in the Christian pantheon, if you will. And um, it's my first time on the Christian Feminist Podcast, so I'm excited to be here and eager to talk about this book. And we're so excited to have you here as well. Uh, And I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist on the show for, I guess, nine and a half years, oh my goodness, and uh, moderator for today's episode. I have a PhD in early modern literature, also from Florida State University. Uh, I was there with Victoria, and I've also studied gender and sexuality at Yale Divinity School. And for the last little while, I've been working as a research assistant on an edition of the Tudor translations of Christine de Pizan. I live in Connecticut with my family, and soon the family will be a little bit bigger. I'm supposed to have a baby in August, so that's coming up soon. <laughs> okay, so for our first segment of the show today, um, we we're going to get into our experience with Mary of Egypt. So the show today focuses on Mary of Egypt, this desert-dwelling saint, and um, looking specifically at the book Wild Woman by Amy Frickle. Then we're so lucky to have Amy joining us for this episode. So the format is going to be a little bit different from our usual episode structure, and that we'll mostly be hearing from Amy about her book and her thoughts on Mary of Egypt. But before we get into that, for our knowing section, I thought Victoria and I could just briefly share our own previous experience with Mary of Egypt. So 
though for myself, I hadn't actually heard much about Mary of Egypt before reading Amy's book. Um, I think the saint might have been mentioned in passing in some of the readings in a women mystics course I took a few years back. And actually, I saw her mentioned too a couple months ago in uh, the moralized Ovid, which is this 14th century French text that's one of Christine de Pizan's like, major sources on mythological figures. And Mary of Egypt was discussed there as an example of redemption from prostitution, which tends to be one of the major ways that she's also often discussed, I think. And um, I think it was in connection with the story of Io. But I've certainly never really seen an extended and positive treatment of Mary of Egypt before this book, so I was very interested in Wild Woman, and I think it'll bring a lot more attention to this like fascinating um, saint. What was your experience with Mary of Egypt before this, Victoria? Um, almost no experience. I knew that she was considered uh, a saint in the Orthodox tradition primarily, uh, and I knew that she had lived in the desert, and that's pretty much it. Um, but I, as I will talk about later in the episode, um, though I was raised Baptist, I became Catholic about two years ago. And so I, in that time, have um, really grown, grown to value uh, devotion to saints and uh, have been developing a relationship to icons and that kind of thing. So I was interested mm -hmm. uh, when this topic was proposed in participating um, in a discussion about a saint um, at all, because we, we don't do that um, as much, I think, as, as other um, more higher church-focused podcasts in general. Uh, so that's, that's why I'm here. Yeah, and I'm interested to hear about um, the icons in relation to Mary of Egypt, which we'll get into a little later, I think. So for our learning segment of the show, we're going to hear mostly about Amy's experience with Mary of Egypt and her thoughts on Mary of Egypt in relation to her book, Wild Woman. This book was published a little less than a year ago in August of 2021 from Broadleaf Books. And in it, Amy talks about her long relationship with Mary of Egypt, and she describes beautifully this journey that she takes, both physical and spiritual, in search of Mary. It's a book about pilgrimage, desire, and chasing the shadow of the divine in the everyday. The book also includes a translation of the primary text on the life of Mary of Egypt, which Amy and her father translated together from Greek. We'll also talk about that text a little bit at the end of the episode. Um, but first, Victoria and I have some questions for Amy. We're so excited to hear about your experiences with Mary of Egypt. Um, Victoria, could you start us off? Yeah, definitely. So, Amy, you tell this delightfully vivid story in the preface of discovering this footnote about Mary of Egypt for the first time. And I'm not sure if it was just graduate school flashbacks or just knowing what it's like to uh, come across a piece of information that won't quite leave you alone. Um, but I, I really felt like I was in that library with you um, 
kind of being uh, being entranced by this uh, chain of, of references and, and not being able to let it go. Can you walk us through that experience and tell us a little bit more about uh, how you were first introduced to Mary of Egypt and why you wanted to write this book? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I understand that kind of graduate school rabbit hole sort of feeling that I had when this this happened, but I had just finished my PhD and I was working on turning my first book into a um, into an academic book. I was turning my dissertation into an academic book. And so I was very concerned about getting all my footnotes right. So I was spending hours and hours and hours at the library re-looking up every single reference in my in my book to make sure that I had the page number right and the publisher right and all of those things. And this was really before there was a Google Books where you could do a lot of that work online. So I was just doing it physically in the library, wandering around. Um, and I got really hungry. Um, and I... Um, I think I was pretty lightheaded and I was needing to head for lunch, but instead I found myself just wandering around the stacks and I just, for no reason that I can recall or any, I don't have anything to tie this to, but I pulled this book off the shelf. It was called The Lives of 10 Byzantine Women Saints. And I, my my dissertation was not on Byzantine women. I really didn't know anything about Byzantium. Um, I hadn't spent my graduate school career really studying ancient women in any way. And so when I, I grabbed this book off the shelf, it really wasn't for any purpose that I can tell you about. But I just opened it up immediately to the story of Mary of Egypt, and I started reading, and I flipped ahead in the story to this beautiful moment, which still strikes me as incredibly beautiful, where um, this monk, Zosimus is his name, is in the, in the desert, and he is chased after Mary of Egypt, and he's befriended her, even though she has not wanted to be his friend, really, and resisted his his interest in her. And they, But they have become friends, and she's asked him to bring her communion. And so he brings it to her in the desert, and he also brings her some lentils and some dried fruit. And I just, I found this moment just indescribably beautiful, and it just stayed with me. And with it came the story of Mary of Egypt, the story of this, the the story in which our understanding of Mary Magdalene in the in the Christian tradition that we've inherited, it, it's a bit of a reverse trajectory. But that story really comes from Mary of Egypt's story, the story of the reformed prostitute, the story of the holy. Um, I think at one point um, Benedict Award calls these women in the Christian tradition the holy harlots. Um, and this was the story of Mary of Egypt, that she was a prostitute in Alexandria, that she traveled um, to Jerusalem and had a life-changing experience and then went into the desert. And I, over the years, just became increasingly fascinated with this story and wanted to understand it better. And at some point I decided that the only way for me really to get into this story, to really understand what it was about, was to try as best I could to follow in the footsteps of this person who may or may not have ever existed. Thanks, Amy. That's such a great anecdote about how you first discovered her. And it does take me back to those graduate school rabbit hole days, too. Um, and thank you for that that uh, little encapsulated outline of the, the story of Mary of Egypt as well. Um, and 
a question that I had um, thinking about Mary of Egypt is that, uh, you know, at some points in, in your book, you bring up some problems that modern readers, and especially women, could possibly have with Mary of Egypt and her story. And I think the phrase you mentioned, um, holy harlots, could get at um, some of those potential problems. Uh, what are some of these problems that we might have with the story? And what do you see as her appeal, sort of in spite of these problems, or maybe even because of these issues and how they are at work in her story or her tradition? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I've struggled with so much because like Victoria, I was also raised Baptist and um, eventually found myself an Episcopalian through various um, vagaries of my own trajectory or whatever. But I I think that, you know, rooted in my own Christian story, and I'm not going to say this is true of every Christian everywhere throughout the world, or it is the Christian experience, but uh there was a real divide for me growing up where I did and how I did. I grew up in South Dakota and I was um, in a in a Baptist church for many years. And there was a real separation between body and spirit for me uh, growing up and continuing into my adulthood. And I really struggled in my life to put these two things together, to, to put my body and my spirit in the same place at the same time, doing the same work. It's really not that easy for me uh, in my experience. And so I think that part of the story of Mary of Egypt is a is in some ways about this difficulty. And for me, my approach to the story of Mary of Egypt. And in the tradition, she's often called an icon of repentance. And she's celebrated in the Orthodox Church in the third week of Lent as part of the repentance story in the Christian tradition. So in some ways, kind of at the most base level, or maybe the the way I like the story the least, it's told in such a way that Mary of Egypt is like the worst possible sinner. She was a woman already, you know, a, a sinner category. And then you add in that she was a prostitute. And then you add in that she actually liked to have sex. Uh, so the story tells us, then you you have this this figure who is the worst possible of all sinners and God saved even her. So that's the way the story is sometimes communicated. And I don't think that's the best way to communicate it, but it kind of goes along with the idea that if if God could save her, then God could save me. Um, and that version of the story, I think, is deeply problematic for me and sometimes made me question my own motives in following the story of Mary of Egypt and in looking for something in this story that I could love and a way that the story could be transformed in some way into love for me. Um, so that, so the story of Mary of Egypt sometimes becomes this kind of um, problem of repentance. So we're really bad people and we have to be saved somehow and we have to give up ourselves and then we can become holy like Mary of Egypt was holy. And I, I don't think that that's the deepest level of this story. I think there's another way to tell the story that's more beautiful and more profound and more full of love. So what would be like the, the focus of that um, more profound, more full of love story just in a nutshell then yeah so i would start i would start with the wild woman archetype so if you and we can talk about this too when we talk about icons but mary of egypt uh when when she's depicted in 
some of the icons of uh, of the Orthodox Church, she's utterly different than every other woman that you see depicted. So most of the women you see are completely covered from head to toe, and they they are um, their hair is covered and their bodies are covered. And Mary of Egypt is almost like a John the Baptist kind of figure. She has wild hair. She's she is wearing very little clothing. Um, her her body is very visible, and um, and she's she's a desert dweller so she has a kind of wild look about her in often in this iconography and and she is i think a a wild woman archetype by which i mean that she is the woman in the desert who's calling us toward a deeper and truer version of ourselves and she she calls to us from the desert from this place of knowing. And what does she know? She knows herself at a very deep level. She knows what she knows what her strengths and her weaknesses are. She knows um, she knows struggle. She knows pain. She knows suffering. She knows desire. And when I look at the story of Mary of Egypt, I'm struck by how at every turning point in the story of Mary of Egypt, she's driven to a bigger life a vaster life, a stranger life, a wilder life through her desires. And I think it's that relationship to desire that takes us into a, a different um, a different trajectory in understanding the life of Mary of Egypt, which is that that through our stories, through our pain, through our isolation or our suffering or our uh, our walk through this world, whatever that looks like, God is always calling us, always asking us for a deeper life, a saner life, a more complete life, a a more whole life. And for me, Mary of Egypt is really a, is a figure for that whole life. Uh, Amy, you mentioned John the Baptist and and this uh, kind of different physical representation of Mary than uh, than other female iconography. Is she depicted differently than other desert mothers? Do you think, or is there a commonality there? I think she's predict- she's um, she's different than other um, desert mothers who are often put into the iconography in a in a teaching role. Um, so they're they're kind of signified by teaching. There's also kind of a martyr role that those women can be put into. But Mary of Egypt doesn't have either of those elements. She really has this more um, wild. Uh, I mean, the, the thing that's most striking is that she's usually mostly naked. That's kind of the that's kind of the, sig- the signal that you're looking at Mary of Egypt is when you when you notice that the saint that you're looking at isn't um, isn't very well covered. Yeah, it's so interesting that uh, there's seems like this connection between nakedness and this like true and deep integrity that you find in her story. Um, I wonder if we could briefly talk about um, the the difference between self-loathing and kenosis that you mention in the book, which I think uh, gets into this distinction you're making between at least uh, two different ways that we can tell the story of Mary of Egypt. So on page 125, you say, 
I knew how close self-loathing could live in the Christian tradition to kenosis, the radical outpouring of oneself for the sake of love. I knew the damage it could do if self-loathing compelled me to follow in the footsteps of Mary of Egypt. I could just as well have stayed at home. I had plenty of that where I came from. And it sounds like that's sort of uh, related to that struggle, that divide between um, body and spirit that you were just mentioning. Is that so, or could you uh, explain a little bit more about this difference and why it's important? Yes, kenosis is such an important concept in Christian tradition, and I'm not particularly interested in giving it up, right? I think that this idea of radically outpouring of the self in the name of love for the sake of the other is not an aspect of the Christian tradition that I'm particularly interested in deciding we don't need or we can move beyond. Um, But very often, and especially when it comes to women, and especially when it comes to saints, uh, we've we've misunderstood kenosis as a form of self-loathing, I think, as a form of uh, rejecting the self that we've been given, rejecting the story that we've been given, rejecting the the body that we've been given, and then this need to, to punish it or dismiss it or reject it. And I think that the story of Mary of Egypt can, you know, it, it can look like that on on one level. She goes into the desert. She's basically starved, or so she's depicted in the iconography. I have some I have some thoughts about the food of Mary of Egypt. Um, but and part of the reason I think I was so moved by Zosimus is bringing this food to her in the desert was that um, offering of nourishment and that that sense of her own of her value as a as a human being and as a a body. Um, Let's see, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. So anyway, we can we can so misunderstand this and think that somehow this life in the desert or this holiness is a form of of self uh, self rejection in the sense of self-loathing. And and I I worry about that with the story of Mary of Egypt. I, I think that it's a it's not a not a great path for a woman in this society to walk down. And I do have I have a close friend who who really thinks that we should not follow saints ever because she thinks that their lives are so extraordinary and extreme that by attempting to follow them, we lead ourselves into paths that are not that are not healthy and not good. So we should hold them at a distance. And so I, having walked this path of Mary of Egypt, was always concerned of what is it, what is it I'm offering to, um, to other people? What is it I'm saying to other women about how, how we live in this world and what a path of love looks like? And it, and it was just always a worry for me that I was leading people down the path of self, self-rejection or self-loathing in a, in a sense that I didn't mean, which is not to say that the path of Mary of Egypt isn't, isn't humble and isn't loving and isn't open to the earth and open to the world and transformative. I really believe that it is. Yeah, and that, that always seems to be a worry in looking at sort of ascetic figures like this because there's so much, like she hadn't eaten basically anything before those, what, three lentils, right? <laughs> right. Now, yeah, I don't think that's probably the case. I mean, but here we get into the legendary aspects of it, right? So did she or did she not eat in the desert? I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, the the story tells us that she took three little loaves of bread. And this actually is a really common thing for aesthetic ascetics in the desert. Um, to take little, to take loaves of bread and then turn them into little tiny balls and then dry those balls and then live on, you know, little tiny um, dried, like very mini croutons in the desert. Um, sort of like manna, but in reverse. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Uh, but I did talk with a um, an ethnobotanist named Gary Nobhan, who's written a lot of books on desert um, food and so on. And he thinks it's more likely that Mary of Egypt, if she lived and was a, a person in the desert, a hermit, as I believe that she was, um, probably actually cultivated some land there because there would have been springs coming up from the earth and you would have been able to find those. And then, you know, she lived in the desert for a very long time, decades. She would have probably cultivated a small piece of land there and then lived off of both wild food and um, some cultivated food. So that kind of changed my understanding of how a person lives in the desert. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And it sort of makes it seem like it would be a choice as well for her to remain naked in the desert after her clothes fall apart. Um, seems like she could have uh, gotten some animal skins or something, but <laughs> <laughs> but then she would have had to kill animals. I don't know yeah, how that would have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. These are the kinds of things I sit around and think about. Like, <laughs> would, would she have actually been? Did they mean naked? Mean naked? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of the desert, uh, in the course of your your experience with Mary of Egypt and with your preparation for writing this book, you took a physical journey into the desert as well, because um, the book uh, sort of follows that physical path of Mary of Egypt's life um, from Egypt to Israel to Palestine to Jordan. and. Um, it it tells your the story of your journey, um, sort of retracing her steps, and it's both this uh, physical journey and this emotional and spiritual journey that you're describing, um, as you draw parallels between your experience in Mary of Egypt's, and also at points you talk about uh, the connections between Mary's life and your friend's experience with cancer. Um, so I'm curious about this journey structure to the book and like the physical aspects of the journey as well as the spiritual aspects. Was this structure planned from the beginning of your uh, idea, the first time you had the, the idea to write this book? Um, and were there any emotional and spiritual connections between Mary of Egypt's journey and your own that sort of surprised you along the course of your long relationship with her? Um, I'm also interested to hear, uh, to the extent that you're comfortable with sharing, uh, what sort of developments in your own life would make you feel closest to or most similar to Mary of Egypt, and you may have already um, mentioned uh, some of these. Yeah, um, well, first of all, the idea of traveling with Mary of Egypt came very late in the process, so I started... I knew that I was interested in the story and because I was an academic, I knew that being interested in a story meant like researching it. In fact, that's the only real definition of being interested that I had. Uh, that's how I knew how to be interested in things, if that makes sense. So much of the my first wrangling with Mary of Egypt and my struggle with her and my attempt to understand what, what I was doing with this story or why it was so appealing to me and didn't really want to let me go um, was kind of in the in the realm of research. And I wrote even various attempts or beginnings of different kinds of books about Mary of Egypt. And I'm not a scholar of late ancient Christianity. Um, that's not what I, I did my graduate work in literature. It was mainly on um, apocalyptic belief and American evangelicals. And so it was really a world away or a couple of worlds away from Mary of Egypt. So I didn't, so exploring this story, I really didn't know what I was looking for. Or I didn't know 
how to find it. And I finally decided I had written a book about Julian of Norwich, which was I called it a contemplative biography. And it was an attempt to take the text of Julian of Norwich and put it alongside the historiography of 14th century Norwich and then pull those two things together and see what I could learn about the life of Mary of Egypt or I'm sorry, of Julian of Norwich. So I had this similar idea that I could do the same thing with Mary of Egypt. I could uh, really dig into the text. And that's why I went and learned Greek. And I did this translation with my dad because I thought that it would be a way of getting closer to Mary of Egypt, but in fact, didn't work at all in the way that I had wanted it to, because the tech, Mary of Egypt didn't write anything. Julian of Norwich wrote a book and we can read that book. And when we read it, we get a sense of her voice. We might not understand her biography when we read that book, but we can get a sense of who she was. And when we dig deeply into the story of Mary of Egypt, I think she becomes more elusive than ever because that story wasn't written by her. It was written by a man named, possibly written by a man um, named Sophronius who lived uh, probably a couple hundred years after Mary of Egypt lived. At least her story was passed down through an oral tradition to other monks and so when I when you, we read that text, we're not really getting access to Mary of Egypt in any kind of transparent way. And so my attempts to do this textually just absolutely failed. It just was it, it just I wasn't getting where I wanted to go. And I don't know that it was really like really specific things in my own life that were leading me to find this figure of Mary of Egypt fascinating. Um, except what I mentioned about this search that I feel like I've been on for decades and decades, which is a search for wholeness, a search to bring all of my life into one frame, if you will, or like my body and spirit to be aligned in some way and doing the same work. And so maybe maybe that at the most vague sense was what I was after. But I didn't know. I didn't know what I was looking for. I just knew I was looking. And um and so then eventually, late, later on, I had this idea, okay, what if I can't draw closer to this woman via books, which is really one of the only ways I know how to create, how to, how to move closer to an historical figure. What if I try moving closer in landscape? And so that's where the idea came to turn the seventh century manuscript that I had been working with and translating and struggling with. And one whole version of this book is letters to Sophronius, because I just, I found him such a frustrating character and fascinating, but frustrating. And so I tried writing letters to him and I thought maybe that's how I would get toward Mary of Egypt and that failed. So finally I said, you know what, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go and I'm going to see if this works. If I turn this seventh century document into a map and I walk the map, let's just see what happens. So it was a journey undertaken with a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, it was a pilgrimage without other pilgrims, which is usually how you know where to go and you know what to do is because other people have walked these routes. And I didn't, I didn't know when I undertook this journey that other people had walked this route. I just myself felt compelled to give it a try. Were you worried when you set out to do this that you would be lumped into this kind of tradition of middle-aged woman pilgrimage travel experience books, things like Wild or, or Eat, Pray, Love, 
Uh, were you worried about kind of being tarred <laughs> with that brush? <laughs> well, it probably wouldn't have felt like tar at that point to me. It would have felt like, oh my gosh, somebody's actually interested in what I've done. <laughs> because when I set off to do this, I mean, like, I, first of all, I didn't know if there was going to be anything. I mean, I really didn't know if there would be a book uh, or or a pilgrimage or if I would just be wandering around out there for no reason whatsoever. And then, and and not, you know, I didn't know that it would be meaningful to anyone including myself so in that sense no I wasn't I would I would have been hopeful that I I felt like I didn't have the dramatic tale to tell that uh you know that that forms the core of books like wild or eat pray love or whatever um but yeah I mean I guess I kind of would have been thrilled if if I'd had that sort of of hope um but instead I just had I just had uncertainty I just had I don't know let's just see what happens I mean it won't be boring. That's about and that's about the best I could do with that. <laughs> Absolutely no shade to either Cheryl Strayed or Elizabeth Gilbert, who are fantastic writers. I just that that is a subgenre and and this book sort of skirts around it, I think. Yeah, for sure. And also just, you know, because I I mean, I do think there's this search, you know, that's in our society. And I do think it has a lot to do with the fact that we spend so much time on screens and in front of the computer and our communities have become more and more virtual and disembodied that there is this search for that, for that self in a way, or for that. I mean, I think this is partly why the wild woman archetype calls in these various forms because of, um, because of our need to reconnect in some way. And that is, that was a stunning part of, for me, my discovery of Mary of Egypt was just how central a role the natural world played in my own understanding and growing understanding of Mary of Egypt. That it really wasn't until I went into the actual, I'd read about the wilderness for, you know, for a long time in relation to Mary of Egypt. I'd looked at pictures, I'd studied maps, but it wasn't really not until I went into the wilderness of Jordan that I had any clue what Mary of Egypt was after. And I think that physical, actual landscape, walking through it, drinking the water, um, you know, eating the plants, taking that physical journey into that specific landscape, that's how I, I came to understand that Mary of Egypt's path was a path of healing. She was being healed in the wilderness from her disorientation, her alienation, her isolation, her life that I'm sure contained an enormous amount of physical, sexual, emotional, and mental abuse. And the, the when she was in the desert, the land began to heal her. And I had that understanding because I encountered in the desert um, a man who was undergoing that process himself. The wilderness of Jordan was in the process of healing him. And so as I came to understand his story and I came to connect it to the story of Mary of Egypt, and then I came to connect it to my own story, I started to see that this is what Mary of Egypt was doing in the wilderness. She was being healed and not in some abstract sense, but in a really tangible way. Yeah, it's so beautiful and fascinating that you were able to take this story of Mary of Egypt and find in it this 
a kind of healing from the disembodiment and self isolation that you're talking about because it seems like it's such a story about uh, <laughs> disembodiment and uh, self isolation. And I think part of how that comes that kind of sense of healing comes across in the book is um, powerfully in the last one of the last parts of the book where you were talking about visiting the palace of the lady and you realize that even if you're on this pilgrimage without other pilgrims there have been other pilgrims and that was just such a powerful moment for me I wonder if you could tell a little bit about that experience yeah, that was just so mind-blowing, you know, because most of the time that I was on this journey, I didn't even think I was following necessarily a real person. And I wasn't even sure how important that was to me. Like, does it matter? This really gets to your, to, you know, each individual pilgrim's sense of reality and where, from where is reality derived. But for me, I have always had a really good imagination and I was indulging it fully in this project. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter too much to me if she was a real person or not. I'm going to walk this path as if she were real. And I'm going to try to understand the story as if, and as if is good enough for me. And there were times definitely during the journey where that was challenged, um, by other, by other people, by people I encountered, um, who, who were just sort of mystified by my willingness to, follow the as if path. And I still sometimes am mystified by myself and my willingness to follow it. But what happened was that I got to the river, to the banks of the river Jordan, to, to the, um, to Jericho. I was staying in this amazing place, which if anybody goes to Jericho, they absolutely should stay. Um, and it was, um, a refugee camp and there was a women's community, um, bed and breakfast, um, refuge it was a, a what am I trying to say ah, I can't think of the name of it right off the bat but we can put it in, the, in your show notes or whatever later if you want but anyway it was a beautiful place I met this amazing woman there named Um Faris and she um she herself was from Egypt and she had married a Palestinian and moved as a very young woman from Egypt to the Jordan River and I went um while I was there to um to the monastery of Herasimus. And when I was at the monastery of Herasimus, I felt like my whole journey just kind of fell apart. I felt like it was the end. This was the end of the journey. I had gotten all the way to the um, to Jericho. And the only plan I had after Jericho was to cross over into Jordan and see what the wilderness looked like. That's That's all I had. I was like, okay, well, that's the last thing I'm going to do is just, I hadn't even scheduled very much time for this because I didn't think it would be very meaningful. So I, I just had put a couple days at the attacked a couple days on to the end of my, of my trip with the thought, okay, I'll cross into Jordan. I'll have somebody take me into the wilderness. I'll look around, I'll look up at the stars and we'll call it good. And I'll go home. And I got to the monastery of Herasimus and there were finally, for the first time, I was surrounded by all of these images of Mary of Egypt because she's a very important figure at that in that place in the desert. And so there was a whole corner of the iconostasis devoted to Mary of Egypt. And I really had a repulsion of those images, um, to those images, a repulsive reaction. I did not like them. And it felt like my entire journey and all that I had done and tried and wondered about, and it just felt like it all fell apart. 
like, what have I done? I've wasted a ton of money. I've wasted my carbon. I've, you know, vastly increased my carbon footprint and I've accomplished nothing. And, um, and oh, well, you know, I cried. I sat there. I mourned for my friend who I thought was dying. And I just mourned for myself and my own foolishness. And then I put my sunglasses on so that my husband and my guide couldn't see that I'd been crying and went back outside. And the next day we went um, to we went to Jordan and you have to go through this elaborate process. I don't know how many listeners have tried to cross from Israel to Jordan at that particular location, but it, it was an hours long process to travel maybe two miles, not even three different taxis and two buses and who knows what. And we spill out on the other side uh, and we meet a guide um, from this organization called Adventure Jordan lovely guy and he he decides he's got a little bit of an itinerary for us that day he's going to take us to the baptismal site on the river jordan which is on the now the jordanian side and so he's going to just show us the little church that that that's there so we we do that and sure enough inside the church same images of mary of egypt that i'd seen all along the way not ones that i particularly loved and Meanwhile, Jawad, our guide, was talking with the security guard at the front of the church, and he learned that there was this a site devoted to Mary of Egypt not 200 yards away from the church. And I can't describe how strange and how impossible that sounded to me. I, I mean, how in that moment just confounded I was, because I had done all this research. I had read everything that I thought existed on the subject of Mary of Egypt, which is which is probably just the arrogance of an American scholar, just seeing everything from an American point of view. But I mean, I really had, I felt like I'd done my homework. I had never heard of a site of Mary of Egypt. How could there even be a site of Mary of Egypt? There's like, I, just, I was so just befuddled. And so we walk over there and what it is, uh, the site is contains two, the remains of two buildings. And um, in the local lore, in the story that the local people tell about that place, those two buildings are called the Palace of the Lady. And it's a direct reference to Mary of Egypt. I even think that it might be a little bit of a joke, um, an ancient joke that was passed down generation to generation, because it's obviously if you see these two, the ruins of these two little, little tiny buildings, they're not, it's not a palace. And Mary of Egypt, um, and I don't mean this in any kind of pejorative sense, but she was a poor person on the margins of society. So giving her the designation lady, I think was a loving, um, a loving connotation obviously she had made an impression upon the people there and they had given her this um honorific of lady but but she wasn't in the traditional sense a lady so palace of the lady was this kind of beautiful way of describing um this very humble place on the border uh, between jordan and israel and it's possible that mary of egypt lived in that place but what we know for sure is that thousands of pilgrims traveled on the same road, basically, that I had traveled on, crossed over the river to go in search of Mary of Egypt for hundreds of years. And I had never heard of one of them and didn't know anything about it. 
we see that terminology with several female saints, right? Uh, Therese of Lisieux, also diminutive, uh, is called Our Lady of Lisieux, and um, at least spiritually diminutive, um, the Virgin Mary is often just called Our Lady. Um, so I, I think right. I think I think you're right, though, that, that there is a kind of um, affection in in those titles. Yeah, and it makes me think, you know, that it, it was very confirming of the sense that this was a journey of love, that that Mary of Egypt's path was a path of love, because you could almost feel the love that kept this story alive in that location, that kept it being t- passed down from generation to generation for you know a thousand years and that was quite mystifying to me but but it but it was very much a sense that that she was a person much loved and much venerated in that location in in that place and during that time and for a long time afterwards so this seems this seems like a perfect opportunity uh, to, to ask you to talk about your own um, veneration that you recount in the book. Uh, you tell a really lovely story about an icon that a friend makes for you of Mary of Egypt. Uh, and I, I just want to read a, a couple sentences here. Uh, uh, on our first day in the Judean desert, Sorry, our first day in the Judean desert ended on a bench looking out over hills empty of vegetation and human life. Though I'd never been here, this was the landscape that had formed my understanding of Mary of Egypt. In an icon of her that Mary Green had made for me that sat on my windowsill at home, Mary's hands are open in a gesture of prayer and her gaze is toward a blue, blue sky. She stands in a wild place like this one with no hint of civilization around her. Uh, And then you go on to talk about this habit that you developed of leaving your uh, icon little natural gifts. Uh, and th- though I have lots of icons, um, I've never given them presents. And I don't know of that as being part of the Orthodox tradition. Is that something that you just started doing as an individual thing? Tell me more about that <laughs> practice and your experience of the icon. So my my own experience just with icons in general, maybe that will help, is that I spent um, some time, so Baptist, Baptist child, uh, Baptist adolescent, I went as a very devout Baptist to Russia when I was about 19. And I was absolutely blown away by the Orthodox Church. I mean, it was such an, a transformative experience for me because I had so much understood the spiritual life or the holy life as a kind of shutting down of all your senses and sort of shutting it out and getting really, really still and quiet within yourself. That's how I'd understood prayer. That's how I'd understood um, the spiritual life. And it never occurred to me that the physical senses could be a part of that. I I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but that's how no, I would No, it does not. That is that is very much true of my journey as well. Um, from, as a as a low church Protestant <laughs> child and teenager who became a Roman Catholic adult, uh, you can't see me, but I'm nodding ferociously. And I that embodied faith is is something that's very important to me. So I 100% understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, I, I really at first I just thought that like incense and candles and all those pictures, they were just distracting. And what were, what were people doing? You know, like that just seemed so 
um, distracting because in my view, was, the, the whole purpose was to shut out all of that and go to some private, quiet place within yourself. And, and so I remember this Orthodox woman giving us this tour of um, the Orthodox church in, our, in the town where I was living. And she said, you know, sometimes when I can't pray, I just come here and I light a candle. And yes, I thought, I mean, as a teenager, I was 19 when she said that to me and I've never forgotten it. But at the time, my first, my, my response to that was, oh, you poor thing when you can't pray, that's just so sad for you to have this replacement candle. And now, you know, all these years later, I'm like, that experience of not being able to pray is such a tender one for me. It's one I understand. I know what she's talking about now. And I know Absolutely. what it means. <laughs> Thank you. Like, I know what it means to be able to do something, to make a physical gesture, to to replace words and certainties and ideas with this simple thing, a little candle. And, and in I, many ways, I think, at least for me, I don't want to speak for your yes, experience, please. except that it seems like we have an awful lot in common on this point. <laughs> um, but for me, like, that is one of the most beautiful things about the nature of spiritual practice as practice is that action, that repetition can be there for you when you're not feeling it spiritually, when you can't pray, when you're in despair, when you don't have the words um, something like, uh, for example, I say the Hail Mary when I don't know what to pray. Um, I that repetition, that knowing that the words are there and the communion of saints is there in those old words when I can't do anything else is is very gratifying and and comforting to me. Absolutely, and that physical gesture, just being able to to not have to find the words or the feelings. And not rely on, I, I didn't understand at 19, you know, how, <laughs> how, how feelings can come and go and they're not really that reliable, but a candle is pretty reliable. You know, you can, you buy it and you light it and you put it in front of uh, an icon and it's a pretty tangible action that says, I'm still here. I don't get it. I'm confused, but I'm still here. And I think that's kind of what, that's how Maybe that's how I began to bring presence to my icon of Mary of Egypt. The thing is, she just sat in my windowsill and I met her every day. So that was the beginning of it. It was just like the beginning of this relationship where um, I just started to pay attention to the way that the blue sky in the, um, the icon was reflected in the blue sky that I was looking out at. And the whiteness of Mary of Egypt's hair was like the whiteness in the mountains that I was looking at. And so I just began to see all these resonances and began a kind of conversation, if you will, um, a, and let her sort of speak in her own silent way back into my life. And then, yeah, I just found myself noticing things differently because of my relationship with her, noticing the natural world in a different way. And so I found myself picking up little things and bringing them home and, and putting them. And then where are you going to put them, right? Oh, well, I'll just put them on the windowsill next to Mary of Egypt. And it didn't necessarily always occur to me that that was a gift. Um, but eventually that became very clear that I was bringing these little gifts and I was using these little gifts in the conversation that we were beginning to have. And, um, and then 
after my pilgrimage, I mean, I was so intrigued by the things that people bring home from pilgrimages and the things that they have always brought home for thousands of years, you know, little bits of sand, little bits of water. I remember once, this is the kind of thing I didn't understand. I visited Lourdes and um, I brought home a bunch of little plastic Mary bottles, you know, that you can fill with holy water. But being so Baptist in my understanding, I just, I was like, well, I'm not going to carry that water on the plane. So I just came home and put like regular water in it and gave it to a friend of mine as kind of half joke, half, half serious. And she was so horrified that I hadn't actually brought her holy water. That was the whole point. And I was so, you know, just so, (laughs) so non-material in my understanding that I didn't get it right. So in some ways, I think that's part of my own journey, my own process of Mary of Egypt is putting those pieces together and understanding how the material and the spiritual begin to connect and then connecting that to my own life. Thank you for sharing that. That's a really beautiful story. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing um, all these aspects of your experience with Mary of Egypt. And it's uh, time to be moving forward and soon wrapping up in the episode. Um, I'd like us to briefly discuss the Life of Mary text. Um, but before that, one last question, very quick for you, Amy. Um, I was wondering, uh, if you were finishing writing Wild Woman today, instead of uh, over a year ago when you completed it, is there anything you would want to add or alter? There may not be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've certainly kept you know, I've kept growing, I've kept changing, I've kept interacting. Um, I, I keep my understanding of the, of the wild woman archetype, for example, just changes and grows all the time. So I think I, and my, even my understanding of archetype and what I'm doing with, with such a intense and intimate relationship with such a particular archetype that all changes and grows. So hopefully all of that would inform the book. There's one scene that I really wish I had put in there. I mean, there are probably a lot, but one is this moment when my husband says to me, well, I said to him, and I wish I could remember all the context, but my husband and I are in the desert together. He walked with me this kind of physical, um, this challenging physical journey that I undertook as part of this whole um, larger journey of Mary of Egypt. And, um, at one point I was weighing something that we had just learned or had just come to understand. And I said to him, boy, I don't know. This just, that just doesn't feel, that just doesn't feel real to me. That just doesn't feel authentic or something like that. And he looked at me, gave him this crazy look and he said, wait a minute, isn't this whole thing pretend? Like, how can you, what are you doing judging whether some thing is real or or pretend he's the whole thing is pretend and I love that moment because it really reflects the difficulty I have and continue I had at the time and continue to have in understanding the relationship of the imagination to the spiritual life and the relationship of the spiritual life to the physical one that we're all this 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 journey that we're on this this walk that we're in the midst of so I um I wish I had included that because I I love how playful it is in this question about reality what's real and what's not because so many people have asked me so you concluded that Mary of Egypt is was a real person and that's true and I I do want to hold on to that I, I really think she lived on this earth she walked she breathed and I think there's an aspect of this where she reached out in some very mysterious way to my imagination and has continued to play with that, continued to play with me, if you will. Um, and 
I want to keep that alive as well. I want to keep both of those things, that paradox. And I, I don't know how well that comes through in the book, that paradox of of uh, as if that that has been so important to me and continues to be so alive in my life. Thank you for that. Yeah, that idea of as if does seem like a very um, powerful one. And okay, so let's in the last part of our learning segment very briefly talk about the text of the life of Mary of Egypt. Um, I thought that we could just look at a couple of the details of the translation that you and your father created in relation to how we think of the question of Mary's relevance um, for today. So of course Amy you've spoken a lot about Mary's relevance already but I wondered if you could mention just one or two details of the translation um, or difficulties or surprises in the process of the translation as they related to uh, Mary's relevance. Mm. Well, oh gosh, difficulties related to the translation. I wish I had, um, I wish I had a better answer for you. The the thing I wanted most from the translation was some warmth. I wanted the reader to enter the story of Mary of Egypt. And many in many of the translations that I'd read, or parts of the translation that I read, they had a coldness to them. They had a rigidness. And I thought if you really wanted to enter the story, if the story could speak to the contemporary reader, you had to not, you had to feel, you had to feel some warmth from it. You had to enter it like it was uh, hospitable, that it was a hospitable story, that it wasn't going to hurt you. I think sometimes these ancient stories, they have, we have some fear associated with them because they have done some damage and they have hurt us. And so I wanted somehow to enter the story of Mary of Egypt and bring a reader into that story where they were really getting the authentic document because that's important to me as a scholar. I want, you know, I, if I'm reading a translation, I want to know that it's been really carefully done. I want to know that each word has been has been thought about and struggled over and crafted. But I also wanted to create a um, a sense of relationship. And so I think that was the hardest thing was to to bring the story of Mary of Egypt alive in that way. And I've had people say that they wish they'd read the translation before they read the book and that they were very happy that they read the translation after they read the book. So I've had both reactions and I don't know, I suppose it depends on what kind of reader you are. Um, but one thing that I did late, late on in the translation is, um, and this was after a conversation with an amazing woman named um, Carmen Acevedo Butcher, and she's a translator. She translated a a, a version of the a Cloud of Unknowing that is really remarkable, and she's coming out this year with a translation of the writings of Brother Lawrence called The Practice of the Presence. So I was I was talking with her about her translating work, and we were talking about the power of words and the power of words to either create a response of love in the reader or create a shutting down, a closing off in the reader. And at the very end, before I published the translation, I went through and I took out the, I hope I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll offend someone when I say this, but I took out the word Lord because I just would try to feel where Lord landed in my own body and in my own spirit and I could feel the way that it did not convey love in the way that I wanted this translation to. 
And so I went through just kind of one moment at a time, and I replaced Lord with Holy One. And every time I did that, I felt I felt that something lifted or or changed. And and what that was was more of an invitation to intimacy, more of a, an invitation to freedom, more of an invitation to vulnerability. And I know that's a little change, but to me it was really a profound one. And um, yeah, and I decided to carry forward with that because I could feel that it mattered. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I can say for my own reading experience, I was glad to, that the translation was positioned at the end of the book because there were some things um, going through the course of reading the book that I was then expecting to find in the translation and to pay close attention to, but then there were also surprises that I didn't expect. So like I expected to pay close attention to uh, how you translate like the question of Mary's skin color, do you describe it as black mm -hmm. or sunburned, or um, pay close attention to the passage that describes her leaving her family, like does this leave open the question of abuse, that sort of thing, these things that you talk about in the book. Um, but then one detail in the translation that surprised me was um, the language that's used in that initial encounter between Zosimus and Mary, where you sort of withhold the the revelation of Mary's gender for a while. Um, mm, so there's right. these gender indeterminate phrases like the one he saw or the fleeing one for a couple of paragraphs there until Mary herself verbally names herself as a woman to Zosimus, and then he uses a uh, feminine pronoun. So that that was kind of a surprising yes. and interesting to me. Yes, yeah, I, yes, that is a, that's a tricky aspect of of the text because I really wanted to make it clear that Zosimus thought I wanted, I wanted that moment of surprise of Zosimus's surprise to really become clear because he thought he was chasing a man and he thought that he was seeking enlightenment from a man. And so that moment of surprise when he um, discovers that what he's been looking for is a woman is, I think it's a really precious one. And so, yes, there was that kind of um, uh, gender uh, uncertainty or that sort of um, that willingness to let the story kind of unfold that was essential to that that translation. So thank you for noticing that. Yeah, and it, to me, that, that could be a little bit of uh, some of how I could find relevance for Mary today um, and that her story and a lot of these desert ascetics uh, offers this kind of stripping away of gender at times in the stories, which can almost function as a kind of queer gender expansiveness. Um, so, and I guess she's also technically one of the many cross-dressing saints since she just wears <laughs> Zosimus's <laughs> garment when she's true. not naked. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but anyway, there's there's a lot of yes, definitely that option, that option, and that kind of intentional. I think within the text, even that that playfulness around Mary's gender and what that signifies and what it means. Yeah, so for me, that's interesting in thinking about. Uh, queerness and queer spirituality today and how, you know, saints and stories of saints play into that. I mean, not necessarily always as like celebratory role models, but maybe sort of finding a kind of queerness already embedded in our tradition. Um, and briefly before we move on to the passing on segment, Victoria, what did you, what were your thoughts as, as after you read this uh, translation? So 
the part of the translation that was most interesting to me, and I really did have to force myself not to read the translation first before I read the rest of the book, because my tendency was was to do that. Um, but the the part of the translation that really stuck with me, I think partly just because of my own um, journey to Marian devotion, was the third chapter where Mary is, uh, she can't go into the church and she has this lovely conversation with the Blessed Virgin. Um, the, the word Theotokos um, pops up four or five times, which I uh, always think is wonderful because it, it foregrounds um, somehow Mary's, uh, the Virgin Mary's spiritual purity and her physical embodiment equally at the same time. Uh, which I really love. And they have this conversation about uh, embodiment and spirituality and worthiness uh, that's really beautiful. And not only did that resonate for me with my own uh, spiritual journey, but it also really deeply resonated with the questions that you ask over and over again in the rest of the book about uh, sexuality and femininity and the social acceptability of those things uh, and and how um, the kind of male world values or does not value female embodiment. Um, so that chapter kind of related to the rest of the book in interesting ways uh, for me. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's time to be wrapping up now. Let's move on to our final segment of the show, Passing On, where we give our suggestions for further reading, listening, or viewing. And I can go first. My suggestion actually comes to us today from my sibling, Brittany. When I was telling them about this episode, they suggested I look into the story of St. Marinos, a 5th century saint who, according to legend, was born as a woman, entered a monastery dressed as a man, and then maintained that identity even when falsely accused of fathering a child, and the saint actually ended up raising the child until he entered the same monastery himself. Um, so St. Marinos is this interesting figure for thinking about gender and monastic self-denial and um, uh, that sort of ties into the, what I was just talking about with how we can think about Mary of Egypt and, and queerness and gender. Uh, so in the show notes, I'll link to a recent article on St. Marinos as a transgender role model by Kittredge Cherry on the website Q Spirit. The title of the article is Marinos slash Marina the Monk, Transgender Role Model and Patron Saint. Uh, what's your suggestion, Victoria? Uh, so I was recently published in an anthology of essays about walking, and uh, in the promotion for that anthology, uh, I had a really great conversation with some of the other writers about walking and self-discovery and embodiment and pilgrimages. And so all of those conversations were sort of marinating in my brain while I was reading this book. Uh, and for that reason, I want to recommend another one of the essays from that anthology, uh, an essay called The Hiker and the Flaneur uh, by the writer Nancy Brokaw. And uh, it's an essay about pandemic hikes that is also an essay about our relationship to literary greatness and why we read and write. And the reason that... Um, 
well, you should you should read the entire Ways of Walking anthology because it's it's brilliant uh, and and all the other writers are are wonderful. Um, but the reason that I'm recommending this particular essay is that it centers around uh, a quote from uh, Thoreau: "In wilderness is the preservation of the world." Uh, and and that idea sounded very Mary of Egypt uh, to me. So that's my mm. recommendation. Uh, Nancy Brokaw's The Hiker and the Flannor. Mm, sounds like oh. a lovely piece. And what would your suggestion be, um, Amy? No, those are all, those are both so good. Um, I will just mention something that is on the light side, but I really enjoyed it. And I think it relates to my initial fascination with Mary of Egypt and um, that I just finished reading. It's called Salty and it's Lessons on Eating and Drinking and Living from Revolutionary Women by Alyssa Wilkinson. And uh, love that book. Love Alyssa Wilkinson. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful book that has these, these kind of brief portraits of women, uh, 20th century women mostly, and um, some Americans and some, uh, one British woman, one, I think, French woman. But anyway, uh, and it and has a recipe at the end of each chapter. And it's just a quick, delightful, playful, fun way to think about food and gender and community. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to have to look that up. Well, Thank you so much for joining us today, Amy. It's been so good to have you on the show. Thank you. It's really, it's been really fun to talk with you. I feel like there are so many more conversations to be had, and I'm just grateful for your interest and your willingness to, to think about this strange, vivid, wonderful woman from our tradition. Yes. Um, and thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at CH Radio Network. And be sure to check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Amy Frickholm, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in next month for an episode on women's knowledge in the mystery genre. Until then, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>